0: morning. Merry Christmas. I want to invite you to open your copy of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 1. This morning we'll be spending our time beginning in verse 18 through verse 25. Matthew's account of the birth narrative of Christ. The title of the message this morning is Jesus Emmanuel. The two names or titles that are given to him in this this particular passage And so, if you found your place in Matthew chapter 1, say amen. Let us read together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, And look into your word this morning. Probably a familiar passage for most of us here. I I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word. To rejoice in the truth and the wonder of your word. To be awed at who you are. To be overcome with your majesty and your glory. And I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice this morning in... In your word, that we would uh, exhort and exalt, we exhort one another and exalt you, Father. And I pray, God, that our hearts would love your word and our lives would be ready to to live out and to faithfully proclaim your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. (coughs) During, uh, During Christmas, we often speak about Jesus Christ as the baby in the manger. It's not uh, That's not something that's really foreign to our conversations, but it's not as often that we speak about Jesus Christ as the virgin-born Messiah, the Immaculate uh, Conception. And it's not often that we consider, uh, or maybe we do, but In my opinion, it's not often that we consider Jesus Christ as the virgin-born Messiah. We talk a lot about Him being there in the manger, but not as much about the virgin conception. And so this morning, I just want to ask you simply to consider this. What do you believe? What do you believe about the virgin birth? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? Was born of a virgin named Mary? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? And is this a significant doctrine for the church today? Two questions I really want us to deal with this morning. Do you believe, do I believe, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? And secondly, is this this a significant doctrine for the church today? That is the virgin conception and virgin birth. And by the way, when we speak about the virgin birth, there cannot be a virgin conception if there's not a virgin birth. And so we speak about... The virgin conception and birth in one. Does that make sense? So the virgin birth necessitates a virgin conception. And so I, I want to share with you for a moment of uh, the claims of, of many skeptics today. I, I went to a relig- religious tolerance Website and uh, just looked at some of the things that they have claimed and some of the assertions that have been made. I want to share those with you. Uh, one, one of them is that Paul seems to have been unaware of the virgin birth as we read through Scripture. Another one, that an assertion that, that skeptics make to, to discredit the virgin birth. They would say the virgin birth may have been copied from a Roman fable or another religion. They say the Jewish Christians rejected the virgin birth. They say that, well, the the virgin birth, the story, it was delayed in creation, this birth story. Then there's others who say it's a response to and uh, and inspired by the Hebrew scriptures and the prophecy of, of the Hebrew scripture. Others say the virgin birth story was just an honest mistake. Other skeptics claim the virgin birth story is an allegory. Some claim that the Gospel of John implies a normal birth rather than a virgin birth. And the list goes on and on and on. The skeptics that are out there that try to discredit the virgin birth and what Scripture affirms and asserts through, uh, through the virgin birth. But each of these false assertions can be discredited rather easily. And on top of that, the burden of proof is on really the skeptic, not the doctrine of the virgin conception and birth. And so this morning what I want us to do is just approach this passage, because we don't necessarily have time this morning to answer all of the assertions that are put forward by the skeptics, but I think it is prudent for us to investigate Scripture and see what Scripture has to say and teaches us about the virgin birth, so I pray that we would see how Matthew 1, 18-25 answers these questions. Not the assertions that are put forward by the skeptics, but specifically these questions of, number one, was Jesus Christ born of a virgin? And number two, is the virgin birth a significant doctrine for the church today? And I think the answer to number two, in short, is yes. It is a significant doctrine for the church today. And the answer to number one, in short, is yes, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. I think Scripture affirms, in fact, that that this is really a foundational and an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, one that we must seek to uphold and keep in the forefront of our minds. It was Larry King, as he was asked in 1998 by a questioner, he was asked, if you could, who would you most want to interview? If you could choose from anyone in all of history, who would you most want to interview? And Larry King's answer was Jesus Christ. The questioner said, and what would you like to ask him? And Larry King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. This morning, I want us to First, examine the evidence of the Messiah's virgin conception and birth. I want us to secondly see the significance of the virgin-born Messiah. And so first, let us examine, let us answer this first question. Was Jesus Christ born of a virgin? Let us look into Scripture and answer this question and examine the evidence of the virgin birth of Messiah. If you haven't found yet, there is, a, uh, there is a, an outline provided in the worship guide for you to go along and follow along with. And there are scriptures that are referenced there in the outline as well. And so as we examine the evidence of the virgin birth of Messiah, while we're looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning, I, I think first we, we've got to look at, at the genealogical record. But Matthew is 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 writing to the Jews and to Jewish Christians, and what he's doing in chapters one and two is he's offering an apologetic. Uh, an apologetic of hope, basically, for the virgin birth and for Christ being the Messiah. An apologetic hope for the fulfillment of Scripture in the person of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited, anointed, and promised Savior. And so what Matthew does is in chapters 1 and 2, he skillfully crafts the birth narrative to reveal the arrival of the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to see four proofs that I think Matthew gives us in this passage, to affirm the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Messiah. The first proof is the genealogical record. The genealogy points to the virgin birth. And so we won't spend a lot of time on the genealogy in verses 1 through 17 specifically, but I just want to point out how the genealogy itself opens up the door and asks the question and paves the way for us to see that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And so first, in verse 1 of the genealogy, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, he says, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and this word for the record, it's the word for book. And some say here's the the beginning where he talks about the the book of origins of Jesus the Messiah because this word genealogy in verse 1 speaks to origin, the birth, the beginning. And so we see the record of the genealogy, the book of origins of, of Jesus, Messiah. Matthew begins this account by pointing us to the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, taking us back to Abraham, the promised One, the promised patriarch. And ultimately, in doing this in verse one, Matthew intends to leave us with a question that he will answer in verse 18. And the question is, who then or where from does where is the origin of Jesus Christ from? Where does he come from? In verses two two, through 15 of the genealogy, there's a pattern that's developed where he says a begat B. A begat B. A begat B. I won't read through all of them, but just start in verse 15. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. You see, that's the pattern that's established through chapter verse 2 through verse 15. And then you get into 16, and the pattern at the end of this genealogy is broken. Look at what it says. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the father of. doesn't say that. It says Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. That is, the pattern being broken, Joseph being the husband of Mary, it indicates here that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And the point is even further emphasized through that relative pronoun there in verse 16, whom? You see that whom? It's a feminine pronoun, and it refers back not to Joseph, but to Mary. Pointing out that Joseph is not the father of Jesus, not the biological father of Jesus. And the question that must be in the mind of the reader, that must be in our minds then, is who then is the father of Jesus? Where? From where is his origin? question is said, if Joseph isn't the biological father, then where does he come from? And Matthew places where he comes from, he places the answer to this question emphatically at the beginning of verse 18, where he says, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And he gives us the origin But this word for for birth in verse 18, it's the same word that's used for genealogy. The same exact word that's used for genealogy in verse 1. This origin, the record of the genealogy, the book of origin, the origin of Jesus the Messiah, we see in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ, now the origin of Jesus Christ was as follows. And so he begins to lay out and answer this question that is posed in the genealogy of the origin. Where does this one come from? Where does this Christ child, this baby, this Messiah, where does he come from? Of course, the origin is what we know as the incarnation, where God himself steps down out of heaven and takes upon himself the form of man and is birthed through Mary, the mother of Jesus but not to get ahead of ourselves i want to show you proof two the second so the first proof is the uh, the genealogy points to the virgin birth sets up this question for us of the virgin birth the second proof is found in verses 18 19 and 25 and that is the reality that mary was pregnant before they came together and so you see the skeptics claim that well joseph was actually the biological father of Jesus. And they really came together before, uh, and, and this was something that, that the, the biblical authors, they just don't want to acknowledge. But in verse 18, we see that Mary was pregnant before they came together. In fact, it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Of course, this greatly disturbed Joseph. This word before they came together, it's literally used here, and, and it's used specifically to refer to the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. There had not yet been an intimate union between Joseph and Mary, and Matthew is careful to spell this out for us. And says, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found out to be with child. Well, betrothal is somewhat of a... Uh, archaic word it would be somewhat like our word for engagement except the betrothal process was a legally bonding process and it was during the betrothal process that that wife would be promised to the man and legally they were together however the wife would stay under the roof of her father for a maximum period of up to one year the husband and wife would not live together in fact it was against the rabbinical laws in the Mishnites recorded that the, the husband and wife during the betrothal period could not be alone together in the same room before the wedding night. The law stated that if the betrothed couple had ever been alone together during their betrothal before the wedding night, that a man could not divorce his wife. The point is further proved by the characterization of Joseph in verse 19 of who he was and his character Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, he planned to send her away secretly. And so here's Joseph's thought. Well, Mary has committed adultery, and she's pregnant with another man's child. And he plans to send her away secretly, which in and of itself teaches us and shows us that Joseph, being a righteous man, he would not have broken the law to be with her alone before the wedding night. And so he was going to dismiss her, send her away secretly, not to disgrace her, but simply to rid himself of this problem. And so Matthew's clear to point out and to to tell us these details. Verse 25, he even gives us more of a clear statement if you look at the very end. But he, he kept her a virgin, that is Joseph, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. If there were any... Doubts in our minds. Matthew clears the doubt and he clears the muddy water by saying, He kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. There was no union between Mary and Joseph until after Jesus was born. Every detail that Matthew carefully reveals to us through the narrative shows us that Joseph was not the biological father of Mary's baby. Point being emphasized that this one's origin is from god he has come from god in fact proof 3 proof 3 shows us this mary was pregnant proof 3 shows us the angelic confirmation that mary's child is from the holy spirit look back in verse 18 when his mother mary had been betrothed to joseph before they came together she was found to be with child by the holy spirit That is Matthew's point, the origin of Christ's incarnation, his entrance into humanity is from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, the angel makes this announcement to Joseph as he is considering to put her away secretly and to divorce her. The angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary for your wife or as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is the answer to the question that Joseph is seeking. How did this happen? And the angel comes and says, She has been overshadowed. Well, not here, but comes and says, The child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records the conversation between Mary and the angel in Luke one thirty-five, where the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This, this third proof that the angel comes and confirms that this child, Mary's child, is from the Holy Spirit is significant. The point is not that the Holy Spirit is the Father of Jesus in Mary's womb but that the Holy Spirit has performed, God himself has performed a special miracle, breaking into humanity as only God could do. He took the egg of a woman, think about it, and he fused his divinity with humanity so that they would coexist as one but not such that the divine was corrupted by the sinful human condition, but in such a way that the human condition was empowered by the fullness of the divine so that Christ might obediently submit his humanity on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. It would take the fullness of Christ's deity empowering his humanity to satisfy the wrath of holy God. And that, exact, that is exactly what God has done in Christ. It's an amazing thought that God opened Mary's womb and created life by the power of His Holy Spirit. This is exactly what God has done. The Holy Spirit put life into the womb of Mary so that the divine human child grew within her until she gave birth. It's inexplicable. It can't be explained in our mortal words. Our feeble minds cannot comprehend the depth of this mystery. The point is that God manifested His presence and His power to perform a special miracle. And the reason the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, is a miracle is because it defies all explanation. It cannot be explained. And if it could, it wouldn't be a miracle. This is the miracle of the Immaculate Conception, the virgin birth. It's not just some fable that's made up somewhere in the corner of Bethlehem or in the corner of some city in a remote time and place tucked away from all other interaction. This is, this is truth. This is what actually happened and it seems clear to me that at some point, for each of us, reason must give way to faith. And at some point, we must trust what we cannot explain or what we, what we cannot fully comprehend. And we must praise God for his provision through the incarnation of Christ and the mystery of the gospel. Proof three was that the angels confirmed that this baby is from the power of God through the Holy Spirit. But there's a fourth proof, and the fourth proof of the virgin birth and conception is in verses 22 and 23. He says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The fourth proof is that Isaiah's prophecies are fulfilled. Matthew points out that this is the fulfillment of the one who prophesied long ago. Isaiah the prophet, when he prophesied and spoke before King Ahaz in Isaiah 7.14, and he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 again, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is Jesus. Isaiah 8, 10, he speaks of the prophecy there where the declaration is made, God is with us, Emmanuel, the name of Christ. And thus we have we have the answer to the origin of Jesus, the baby in the manger. God Himself, Jesus Christ, God stepped down out of heaven to walk among creation. So I submit to you this morning that not only do the Old Testament prophecies offer evidence of the virgin conception and birth, but the New Testament validates the virgin conception and birth. And furthermore, I would add that the early church affirmed the virgin birth and conception. And the early church fathers of the second century affirmed the virgin conception and birth. The historicity of the virgin birth is accurate because Scripture is accurate and because Scripture is authoritative. We stand on the authority of God's Word. So Matthew's careful to point out to us that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin Mary. We see the evidence this morning. We examine the evidence this morning. I invite you to continue to examine the evidence this morning. Was Jesus Christ born of a virgin? The answer from Scripture is yes. Yes, He was. But the second question we posed this morning was this. Is the virgin conception and birth, is it a significant doctrine for the church today? The answer is yes. I I want us to see the significance of the virgin birth of Messiah. Beginning in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We hinted at this earlier in reference to the union of, of, of Christ's divinity and his humanity and if we affirm that, that Adam and Eve's sin in the garden tainted all of humanity, the doctrine of original sin, and we do affirm that, then we must be careful as to how we understand the union of Christ in His hum- humanity and His divinity, and in His incarnation. And the necessity of the virgin birth does not have to do with the absence of the Father for the removal of the sin nature because Mary herself had a sin nature. Instead, it has to do with the protective power of the Holy Spirit that secures the divine nature and performs a wonderful miracle on that day. The significance of the virgin birth of Messiah is revealed then through the two names that are given to Messiah, to Jesus, in verses 18 through 25. The first one, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. The understanding, the etymology of the word Jesus, it comes from the word Yeshua, which is Joshua in the Greek. And Joshua means Yahweh saves, God saves. And so it's fitting, it's fitting that Joseph would name Jesus, Jesus. It's fitting that he would be named Jesus. God saves. Look at what the passage says in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. And in verse 25, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, meaning he will save his people from their sins. Why is this so significant? Why is it all so significant that Jesus Christ's virgin birth be affirmed by us as a doctrine that's foundational and essential for the church? Because His divine nature, the incarnation, is at stake in the virgin birth, that certainly is is one huge reason. But the implications of Christ as God-man stepping down into humanity and taking on the form of flesh is hugely significant. Only Jesus Christ the Messiah can save His people from their sins. Jesus is His name because it means He will save His people. And it's exactly what the child king does. In fact, that's one of the, that's one of the points that Matthew makes in the genealogy by pointing out the record of the genealogy of Jesus. He says, Son of David, in verse 1, in verse 6 of the genealogy, David is the only one in all of the kings listed in the genealogy that's called King. And then the connection is made for Joseph, Joseph's son of David in verse 20. And then when Joseph names Jesus, formally adopting him as his son, not biologically, but formally, he is then in the lineage of King David. And the point is that Jesus, this one whose origin is from God, he is King Jesus. And he is the only one, the God-man, who could do such a work to redeem mankind on the cross. Because it would take the fullness of deity in bodily form to defeat sin and death. And only he could disarm the rulers and the authorities, Colossians 1.15. Only he could disarm the rulers and the authorities, making a public display over them and triumphing over them. Only he, Jesus, could satisfy the wrath of God by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice, a a perfect high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It took the one who both identified with man and his humanity and knew the intimate fellowship of the Trinity. For the pleasure of the Trinity is eternally and incomparably greater than the temporal pleasure of anything that Jesus experienced in his humanity. And it took that intimate knowledge for Jesus to defeat sin and death. It took one who would possess that intimate fellowship to defeat sin and death. And Jesus remained obedient to the point of death even death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2, that he might take the flesh to its ultimate end and defeat sin and death, defeat the curse of the fall. He is our King. Jesus is his name. And it means he will save his people from their sin. But not only... Jesus that he will save his people from their sin the wonderful truth that's also communicated in the second name and title that's given to him is Emmanuel they shall call his name Emmanuel in verse 23 behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us And so here's the picture that's given first. Jesus is Savior, the one who saves his people from their sins. But not only is he the one who saves his people from their sins, he is also Emmanuel, the one who abides with. God is with his people. Meaning God with us. Matthew opens the gospel with the promised Messiah That he arrives and and he dwells among us. We see that here in chapter 1, verse 23. The promised one, Messiah. He comes, he arrives, and he dwells among us. We're reminded of that in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. This one God himself in flesh dwelling among his people. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt. Among us. He inhabited the form of humanity. And on our behalf. He satisfied the wrath of God. So that we don't have to. By placing faith and trust in Christ. Christ has atoned for the sin of all those who believe in him by faith. But this promise of Emmanuel. That God is with us. Is a. It's a new promise in the person of Christ. God dwelt among His people in the Old Testament as they walked through the wilderness. He tabernacled among them. He, he, he lived in the, in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was his, uh, was his presence among His people in the Holy of Holies. But here, God Himself has stepped down and taken the form of man, and now He is with us. And Jesus uh, Matthew opens His gospel with this. And think about it. Think how Matthew closes his gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And I will be with you always, right? Even to the end of the age. Well, Christ is ascending to the Father, but he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, and the reality is that God himself has given us Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world who suffers obediently to the point of death to save mankind. And then when he ascends to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit who will dwell with us. What a tremendous promise to all who are his children who have believed in him by faith that we have, have the Holy Spirit, the good deposit in our life, that God himself dwells with his people That he does not leave us nor forsake us, even to the end of the age that he dwells with us. But we know that that's not the end. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21. That speaks of God being with his people. Revelation 21 Beginning in verse one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And listen, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. There is the promise of the presence of God, God with us, God with his people for all those who Trust in Christ and this wonderful, wonderful gift of salvation that has come through Jesus Christ, God's King Son, born into this world, taking on the flesh of humanity, born in a manger. What a wonderful gift that we celebrate this Christmas. The evidence is clear. The evidence is clear. Jesus Christ is born of a virgin. Scripture affirms it. Perhaps the issue, if we doubt the virgin conception of Christ and birth of Christ, is not whether or not it happened, but the issue that we have is whether or not we believe on the authority of Scripture. So I want to challenge us this morning to examine, do we believe this virgin conception and birth? And the significance of this doctrine, of this teaching is is that Christ himself, Jesus, God, has come down, taken on the form of flesh, and that he has become the savior of mankind. Not only is his name Jesus, that he will save us from our sin, save his people from their sin, but his name is Emmanuel, God with us. We know that He dwelt with us in bodily form, and when He ascended, He sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within the lives of all those who are His children. So I want to ask you this morning two questions: Do you believe in the Virgin Birth? And secondly, do you know the Savior who saves from sin and satisfies the wrath of God that you might have eternal life? Two questions. Do you believe in the virgin birth and do you know the Savior who saves from sin and satisfy the wrath of God that you and I might have eternal life? If you don't know the Savior, I want to invite you to examine your heart and consider if He's calling you this morning to know Him. Consider if He is calling you to know the true joy of Christmas this year the birth of Christ and the salvation that he offers. It begins by confessing our sin and repenting of our sin before the Lord Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is, the historicity of the virgin birth is accurate. Jesus lived, he walked the earth, he died on the cross to save man from sin, he sent his Holy Spirit as a deposit in our life for all those who believe, to guide us, to lead us. If you don't know this morning the joy of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the offer is here. Is Jesus calling you? Is he calling you to repent from sin, to turn and to quit running, to turn to him and trust him as Savior? Maybe that's a call that you're hearing this morning for the first time, and if that be the case, I want you to know that There's a whole room full of people here that would rejoice at your salvation. They would rejoice at seeing the joy of Christ in your life at Christmas. You have nothing to fear. And if that's you this morning and you're ready to confess your sin, quit running and surrender to God, I'll be down here and I want to invite you to come and let me pray with you. Maybe you need to come this morning and just repent of being far from Christ this year at Christmas. I, I don't know. But I want to invite you to respond this morning as the Lord is leading you. Don't delay, don't deny, don't reject Christ this morning as the skeptics and the critics do. Trust Him, believe Him, embrace Him, follow Him, pursue Him. Experience the joy of Christ this Christmas. I'm going to close this in prayer. The band's going to come and lead us in a hymn, and this will be a time for you to respond as the Lord is leading you. I'll be standing down front if you need me to pray with you. I would love to do that. The elders are available uh, to pray with you as well. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning, thanking you for answering the questions that we would pose in our doubts, even. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sovereign provision, even through your word. Thank you for the wonderful truth of being our Savior, our King Eternal. God with us. Thank you, Father, that you have dwelt among your people and that you have sealed us with the deposit of your Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we long for the day when you will return that we will be with you and you will be with us and we will experience the joy and the wonder of your presence. Thank you, Lord, for Your word, and now I pray that you would strengthen us to respond to your word as you are leading by your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?